You're listening to The Gateway Church. For more information, please go online to thegatewaychurch.com. Gateway, good morning. Hi, I'm Kyle. Uh, I'm one of the elders here. Um, and I think this is kind of my go-to thing. I, I say, oh, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, this is week, this is like week two. We're in it. Like, you're not getting rid of me. Hopefully, hopefully. Yeah, thanks. That was so encouraging. I really needed that there was a risk in saying that because you could have been like, well, little do you know, Kyle. Oh, that, that could have gone really bad. Oh, goodness. Okay, so uh, let's start over. Hi, I'm Kyle. I'm one of the elders here. It's a pleasure to be here with you. And then we just keep going on. Uh, so if you're, if you're here, you're just like bopping in for the first time uh, because like Google or something got you here. Apparently, the SEO for Gateway is really good. Uh, so that's the search engine optimization, or search, I don't know. Uh, but if that's why you're here, uh, once again, welcome. Uh, just as a kind of like framing for what happens here, each week our goal is to kind of step into, and this might sound weird, but to inherit this rich history of worship that precedes us in the capital C church. And we just uh, experienced some of that. Uh, there was this call to worship, um, and, and just, just by way of reminder, uh, th- those songs are, you might have gone, yeah, I didn't, I didn't really care for the arrangement of that song. Well, that's okay. Those songs aren't for you. They're for, for Jesus. And so we receive the call to worship, but then we continue in that. There was a confession of sin that was read. And so on, on some of our lips um, and perhaps just in our hearts, we were confessing our sins. Those are not just for some intimate, private moment between you and the Father. Those are actually for our community. It's this reminder that we still desperately need Jesus. We need his faithful presence in and amongst us with one another. Uh, and now we actually are, are in this save, the same movement uh, where we come to the word of God. And we hear it read over us and to us and for us. And we ask that the Spirit of God would like so stir our affections for the Jesus to whom this word points that uh, our, like our posture towards one another would extend beyond these moments on, a, on, like on a Sunday morning. But that this, that this remembrance would be vibrant in our lives as we're in our, in our cubicles, in our classrooms, wherever we may find ourselves. And so this is where we are, right? In this very moment, we are between the Word of God and the remembrance of God. And so this morning, it's really just going to be quite simple. We're going to enter into that space. I'm going to, I'm going to spend, I'm just going to pray for our time, for our hearts. Uh, and then we'll spend a little bit of time kind of resituating ourselves in uh, Paul's letter to Philemon. So it's going to be a little uh, framing, a little recap. And the bulk of our time is going to be spent exploring this thin space between the remembrance of God, or between the word of God and the remembrance of God. It's what some would call a liminal space or what a lot of people just call prayer. And for clarity's sake, uh, when I say prayer, I'm not primarily talking about technique, like how you pray. When I am talking about prayer, I'm talking about this posture of heart that we have, this, this like full life orientation towards God. And then what we're gonna do is we're actually gonna be so bold as to close our time and, and try and do this thing of prayer, not just me, but us t- together. And so uh, th- that, that little statement right there is just for any of you who like, su- you hate surprises, I'm actually gonna ask us to, go, go figure, I'm gonna actually ask us to do something that the word of God invites us into. Scandalous, I know. We would actually follow and be obedient to the scriptures. 
So uh, for the culture of our hearts, uh, I guess for me right now, uh, I'm going to pray. Um, so however, whatever posture of prayer you take, uh, you could join me in this. Lord, admittedly so, uh, even just in stating that there's going to be a request made, I'm like nervous. <laughs> I, I have more butterflies than normal. Um, I think because part of it is that I'm like afraid that it'll just suck. Like, what if nobody comes forward? But God, here, here's the reality. My name is not on the line. Our church's name is not on the line. Lord, your name is on the line. Jesus, your faithfulness is on the line. There, we are here. We, there's some of us who desperately need you and your presence to break in. We need your word more to, to be more than just words on a, play, on, like on a page. We actually need your presence. And so, God, that's what we appeal to you this morning. Um, so teach us what we know not. Make us who we are not. Lord Jesus, come. We pray. Amen. So to catch us up, uh, we're right in the middle of a series entitled Redemptive Edge, and I love that I can say that it's, uh, it's just a three-week series, but this is week two, so we're right smack dab in the middle of this series, Redemptive Edge, and each week we are setting ourselves in front of the entirety of Paul's letter. We just experienced this, and if you're kind of new-ish to the church thing, this is a rare thing. It's rare to be able to set ourselves in front of the entirety of a letter and then allow these different component parts to like come to bear on us in light of the whole. And we don't get to just do this for one week. We actually get to sit with this for three whole weeks and, and allow our, like, our hearts and our minds to just like soak into Paul's letter to Philemon. We, don't, we get to read it and it gets to read us. And our hope here is, is that this letter would just press in on us, that it would move us, that it would shape us more and more into the image of Jesus. And in case you didn't know, this is actually the end goal. Like you showing up here, uh, like stubbornly following this Jesus who we claim is actually raised from the dead, it's to be formed into his image. It's not just to be evacuated out of your circumstances, to be like evacuated into, into the heavens. No, it's, it's to be faithful here, to be formed into his image. And just this past week, we witnessed kind of in part how this is not always our experience, how this is not most true most days, how there's these stories and these forces of our culture that are at, like, they're feverishly aiming to win our attention, to stir our affections. Um, and you may remember this little statistic that in one year, each of us will be bombarded with more advertisements than somebody 50 years ago received in their entire lifetime. So it's just, it's nonstop. Just think about what was on your news feed this morning or if you are like going analog and you had a physical Sunday paper, the advertisement, it's just, it's coming from every which way. And um, the French philosopher Michel Foucault, he, he called these forces that are aiming to mold us into the shape of the world, he, he called this the normalization of the individual. That, that what was normal in the world would just be normal in us. And just think about this. Like, once again, how many ads did you see this morning? Like, if you actually pause and take stock of it, like, a ton. There's billboards on the way here, they're, they're, and we're just, we're like numb to it. We're inoculated to it. But nevertheless, it's hitting us. It's starting to seep into who we are. And what we saw last week is that from the micro decisions to these, like, monumental macro movements in our lives, how we live actually starts to tell some of our story. And we can easily be caught up in the story of the world and have, have no idea that it's there. Um, but the, in the midst of that, we can easily just be overwhelmed by that because uh, like, there's this thing, millennial angst. 
I don't know if you know it like personally or you just point the finger at it and just kind of laugh judgingly. Um, peace be with you. And uh, if that's the case, it's, it's this idea that the world is overwhelming, that there are so many options to be had that I have to charge out, like carve out this unique narrative in the world because I have to be authentic to my true self. And if I'm not authentic to my true self, then I, I, I guess I'm not living my best life. Those are the stories that I'm bombarded with. They like somehow like touch parts of my heart that I don't expect to be touched. And, and in light of that, I end up with like either doing this pendulum swing, I either withdraw into like some benign creature comfort, like I just binge on Netflix, or it's something more toxic, like a secret sin. So I go over here and I'm like super passive with it. Or then just like, because I need to control and I need to exert my control, then I'm just like, I have this overt outrage. And so I'm like, I'm here and I'm kind of caught between these two spectrums. But I don't know if you've, if, I don't know if you've noticed this, but as humans, we feel most secure when we understand the path that we're meant to walk down. I don't know if you've, if you've noticed this, that when you know where you ought to go, there's, like, there's some consolation, there's some comfort in that. But even in that, that is, like that statement is a heresy of our day, that there would be a path that you would walk down and that that path would come from without rather than within. And so we're caught up in this weird kind of like cocktail of angst and clarity from God. But can, can I trust the God that I meet in the scriptures? Because this God, he seems like he has a lot of authority and authority is this deep offense to our culture, the place where we find ourselves. And if God is this figurehead of authority, like what do I do with that? But what I, what I love is there's this, he, he's this called the pastor of pastors. And he's he recently, in recent years, just passed away. Eugene Peterson, he said that God, uh, he took up residence and moved into the neighborhood. And there's something about that statement that just says that God's not just far off and abstract, that he's actually, he's just down the street and that he's beckoning you to your true home. He's saying, just knock at the door. I'm, I'm here. Like I will attend to you. I will, I'm here. I've, I've moved into the neighborhood. And to like hold that in my hand this week was, it was a little disruptive, a little annoying, uh, and yet very powerful at the same time. And yet for me, as though that may be disruptive and disorienting and powerful for Paul, the reality that this Jesus, that he is the one in whom God moved into the neighborhood, that he's the place and the person, the way for this new way forward, for him, it's so pervasive that we see in, in Philemon that it's from this lowly place, from him barred away in a prison cell, literally attached to a Roman guard, that Paul ends up penning this letter to Philemon. And he, he writes this to a man who is, is like an emerging leader in the Jesus movement there in the first century. And he invites Philemon to, to actually live into a counter-narrative because the forces in Philemon's day are just as strong. They're not as passive, they're more overt. Like Rome says things like you're either with us or you're against us and they, they, like, like they'll kill you. They'll hang you on a cross kind of a thing. So the forces are quite strong in Philemon's day, you could say. But in the midst of all of that, Paul makes this request. Just, just hear this again in verse 17. He says, so if you consider me your partner, Receive him, 
And just stop right there. This hymn is Onesimus. Onesimus, we don't know what the tension point was, but in this letter, what we see is that Onesimus has run away. He has, maybe he had a falling out, maybe he stole some property, but nevertheless, he finds his way to Paul, like ends up trusting Jesus. And so now Paul is coming back to him and he says, receive him as you would receive me. And in the 16 verses that lead up to this, that lead up to to Paul's request, he kind of, he charts this unexpected course en route to laying bare this request. And we see, we actually see how intense this request is, how kind of upside down it is. And so if you were in verse 17, just track your eyes back down around to verses eight and nine, and we read this. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you, so that's Paul's apostolic authority. Like he can lay down, he can like, he can strike the hammer of with apostolic authority. So he can do that. But what's he say? I can command you to do what is required. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. So in other words, it's, it's from this place of humility as a prisoner for Christ that Paul, he makes his appeal to Philemon, not by powering up, not by laying down this like card of apostolic authority. No, he actually enters into this way. So he's never gonna ask Philemon or Onesimus or you and me by extension to do something that he himself was not willing to do. And he's not gonna ask Philemon or Onesimus or you and me to do something that his Jesus was not willing to do. So Paul enters in to this third way, this way of faithful presence, and then he makes himself this place where reconciliation might occur. We talked about last week, like he embodies the faithful presence. He puts an arm around Philemon, who is his beloved brother. And then he he puts his arm around Onesimus, who's like a son to him, his very heart. And he brings them together and he just like gives them this big old bear hug in Jesus' name. See, Paul, this this prisoner, he, he actually gives us a picture for what it might look like to follow Jesus. And if you're anything like me, this is just super weird because I have no idea how I might track back to the first century and look at Paul's life. I've never, I haven't been in jail, not even the drunk tank, uh, like partying in college that never, like thanks be to Christ, I guess. But like, I, I don't have any reference points for this. And so Paul's letter, it feels abstract. It feels obscure. It feels weird. But then, but then he starts to gain some traction. Look at verse 18. He says this, if, if he, that's Onesimus, if he's wronged you at all or owes you anything, Charge that to my account. Just by a show of hands, how many of you have been offended by somebody? Everybody's hand should probably go up, I'm guessing. Uh, yeah, okay. Thanks for your honesty, Buckley. Um, so, so now how many have not just, a, a, like, how many have been on the other side of that? Like where you've been both the offender and the offended? Yeah, so, so now Paul here. So now we have some traction here in this letter because he says, if he's wronged you at all or owes you anything, Charge that to my account. That, like, that would be for you to have received an offense and then just to say, no, 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 I'll, I'll actually, you have like a friend mediate. And he says, I'll, I'll take the offense. You're saying, no, 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 that's mine. So he's asking quite a lot of Philemon, is he not? He's saying, no, let me have your offense. Um, and maybe that strikes you quite significantly. Perhaps on the way over, you were uh, the offensive or the offended party. Um, so let that just kind of fester in your heart through the rest of the morning, I suppose. Um, but er- earlier, as we were kind of getting going, 
I talked about us inheriting or stepping into this rich tradition of Christian worship that precedes us. Uh, But like any tradition, there's baggage that comes with it. There's personal, there's institutional baggage that comes with it. Uh, And so here's the risk for us is that, the, that we couple the Bible with that institutional heritage, uh, and then we have what I'll call this reflex of pop culture Christianity. And so we encounter a letter like Philemon, and this reflex is just kind of situated there in our hearts. And so we're more inclined to think that in, in a letter like this, that Paul is just asking Philemon to be a nice guy. He's, he's kind of like, okay, um, if you're gonna keep in step with me, who I'm keeping in step with Jesus, then you just need to be a good Christian guy. And so with this reflex, we end up moralizing Paul's request. And if we end up moralizing Paul's request, we end up missing his heart. See, the scandal of Paul's request here, and the thing that even feels obscure to us, the scandal of his request is that he's asking a master, like a head of a household in the Roman and Greek world to receive back property to receive back one who was formerly property to him. And if right now, like something, just like a flag went off and you're like, hold on a second, are you talking about a person as property? Just hold tight. We're actually gonna talk about power next week. So put a pin in that. Um, we're, gonna, we're gonna talk about all this slavery stuff, but um, that's a rabbit we will chase next week. But Paul here is saying, receive him back. And I don't know if you know this stuff. I'm, I'm like, I love the, the histories and all those things. Um, so in, in Paul and Philemon's day, for the head of a household to receive back property, is, is to, it happens in this place of limited good. And this limited good is like honor and shame. So you either have honor, like Philemon, or you do not have honor. And so for Paul to make a request of Philemon, he's literally asking Philemon to give away some of his honor to Onesimus. Do, do you like, I don't think we feel the tension of this but he's asking Philemon to publicly shame himself in the name of Jesus. And then he just, he has confidence that he'll do this and more. He'll receive him back, not just as as property, which would be the public shaming, but he's gonna do this other thing where he's gonna say, receive him back as a brother. Maybe it's because I've just been like, um, like drenched in this, but like, this is just, this is shocking. You just simply do not make a request like this. And yet for us, if we have this reflex and we simply moralize this, then we're gonna also miss not just Paul's heart, but we're gonna miss his confidence, the ground upon which he makes his request. And so just to kind of get us into this, to, to sense this confidence that Paul's had, he, I'm just gonna read through some of these. These are all from Philemon. These are just some verses. And then I want you to just take stock as I read these list of verses See if you notice something. And here's a little freebie of a hint. Notice the preposition. If you're like, oh my gosh, grammar. Don't come at me with that. Preposition, it's, it's uh, like movement. It's gonna signal movement. Into, in, those, that's a freebie right there. So notice, see if you notice the prepositions here, the movement of Paul here. Paul, a prisoner for Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always. Okay, now there's not a preposition there, but it's, okay, go on. Um, Though I'm bold enough in Christ, I want to benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. So what stands out? Remember, these are not rhetorical questions here, Gateway. What stands out? In. 
Yes. Paul is in Christ. How weird is that? Like, it's super weird. That's how weird it is. See, Paul's life, it extends out of his position. He's talking about his position in and with Christ. So Paul's life extends out of his position, not his condition. It extends from a person, namely Jesus, not some set of ambiguous moral categories that can shift based on like the latest tweet. And so too it is with us that our life and our true confidence, it extends from our position in Christ. So where moralism shies away from life's messier moments, Paul helps us to see that though we may be like in the shackles of like our addiction, though we may be in the shackles of guilt, though we may be in the shackles of of shame, or perhaps this is actually like a good season and all you're dreading is going to your in-laws for the holidays. Like that's, that's like in those shackles as well, like there is a confidence that we have and it comes from our position in Christ. And yet the, the grief, the anxiety, the frustration, the hurt, these are symptoms of our condition. This is, the, this is the brokenness with which we find ourselves. It's like we don't have to look too far to see that. And that's why in turn we can say with Paul, he says this in another letter that he wrote to a church in Rome. He says this. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So Paul accounts for his condition. And he says, these sufferings, they don't compare with what's ahead. But I don't don't know about you, church, but I don't really like to suffer. Um, It's not something I'm really keen on. I don't really wake up in the morning and pray, Lord Jesus, would you help me suffer today? And I I actually don't think that's a sentiment Paul has either. But I think what he's aware of is that as he's telling this story that's upside down, as he's asking Philemon to live into the world differently, as he himself is living into the world differently, that it's going to like chafe against the culture. And that in that chafing, there might be some suffering that we encounter. And yet he gives us this glimmer of hope that, that, that these sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Because for Paul, remember, his, his confidence, it extends from his position in Christ, not his condition in prison, not shackled up. And since Philemon is caught up in the same story of grace that Paul is caught up in, this new way of being human, th- this is his as well. Paul can, now he can say this. Check this out in Philemon 21. Paul can say this to Philemon, confident of your obedience. I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. This is the weight of Philemon that is weighing down on our hearts today. And it is the weighty question of like, where is our confidence? See, wherever we are, If we are in Christ, there too goes like the disruptive power of Jesus's faithful presence. And if we are in Christ, there Christ is. If Christ is in us, there we are. Um, And yet I don't really know how to explain this. And so um, I brought a prop. 
So this is one of Griffin's toys. It's a gorilla. It's like, can you see it a little bit? No. Um, silverback. And, uh, and Griffin just walks around the house. Griffin's one, by the way. And he goes, oh, 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 oh. So it's super cute. So this is a gorilla. Uh, can you agree that this is a gorilla? Yes, okay. And this is a mason jar. Can you agree that this is a mason jar? Okay, nodding of heads. Um, can you agree that the gorilla is not in the mason jar? Okay. Are the mason jar and the gorilla separate? Okay. Now, can you agree that the gorilla is in the mason jar? Okay. Now, when I bring the gorilla down around my knees, is the gorilla still in the mason jar? Keep, no, keep, just keep, yes. Okay. Now, when I bring the mason jar up around my head, is the gorilla still in the mason jar? Are you getting it? Where we are, there too goes the presence of Jesus. Did you, do you know this? Did you know that when you stepped into the room this morning, when you woke up, before you woke, that the presence of Christ was there if you were in Christ? Did you, did you know that? Or did you just like know it, but you didn't actually like feel it deep in your bones? If you're like me, I had no idea. All I did was I woke up and then I went to the bathroom and I'm like, there I am. See, we're a bunch of gorillas in mason jars. But let me ask you something. Okay, it, it just forgive me. I know this is super silly, but this is like, this, this may be the only thing you remember from today. So, um, Is the gorilla separate from the mason jar right now? Okay. Is the gorilla in the mason jar? Is there a difference? Okay. Now here's where it got good for me. What about now? What do you think? Eh? Yeah, I actually think this is where most of us are. I think we're just hanging on. We're like, well, but uh, I'm like super close. I'm super close. I go to my small group most weeks. I follow a bunch of Christians on Twitter. Therefore, I read the scripture. Um, I, I come at least every three weeks to church. I even take communion every time I come. I'm super close. Did you see me raise my hands in worship last week? I was on fire. So this is, I, I'm not like trying to shame any of us, um, but you are either in Christ or you're not. And you can either live as though you are and you're just like faking it. It's like being a gorilla hanging on a mason jar. So now to shift gears. See, so to my linear thinkers in the room, I have to apologize a little bit. You heard me say that I was going to pray, and then we were going to do some recap, and then I was going to talk about prayer. And so you're finally thinking, yes, now we're going to talk about prayer. But I haven't actually said the word pray yet, so you're getting a little nervous. That's why I apologize. Um, well, 
As you've been sitting here waiting so patiently, I thank you. But actually, this whole, this whole time, we've, we've kind of been talking about prayer. And this isn't to be cute. It's not to be sneaky. But we've, this is what we've been doing. See, today's, the title of today's sermon is Pray Into Expectancy. And yet when Christians, of, like of whom I'm one, when we hear about prayer, we immediately like have this thing where we, like, we shift into technique, where we think, okay, prayer, yes, I'm totally down with prayer. What do I want? What do I need? What do I desire? Tell me how to pray. Okay, so I have this, this want, need, or desire. So if I pray this way, we, we're like super stoked on technique because we love 10 steps to fixing stuff. So here are 10 methods for fixing your prayer life. No. No, but this is what we do. Our, our orientation is towards technique. So we think, okay, I have, I have like this, um, this relational angst and pain because she said no or because they denied me this. And so God, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring these things to you um, and, uh, and here I am. Where are you? God, are you there? And then you say, okay, so I, let, me try a new, let me try another mode of prayer. Um, contemplation. I'm going I'm to sit and I'm just going to think upon your love, but that's not doing anything. Okay, maybe intercession. I'll pray for them. That's godly. Okay, let me do that. Um, okay, that's not actually getting me what I want, need, or desire. Okay, let me try something like kind of mystical. Maybe this is on the fringe of things. I'll just do listening prayer. Okay, I don't hear you. And we do this. We, we like work our way through the modes of prayer. And then when we don't hear anything or we just don't sit with it or it just doesn't feel right, we just resolve, all, resolve ourselves to thinking, okay, maybe God's just busy with the other two plus billion followers of Jesus in the world. And, and when we do this, when we, like, when we allow, and this is something we actively allow ourselves in, when we think that prayer is just about technique, we end up missing like the, like the heart of our Jesus. The, the author of Hebrews says this. In Hebrews 7, it says, He, that is Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he lives to make intercession for them. So if you don't hear anything else this morning, hear this. If you are in Christ at this very moment, your name is, on Jesus's lips before the Father. Just let that sink in. But, but do you believe it? Like, let's just practice a little immediacy. Do you actually believe that your name, your deepest desires are on the lips of Jesus before the Father? And if you're sitting here and you're going, I have no stinking clue, Kyle. That's Okay. But I'm here to share with you the confidence, the hope that we have, that if we are in Christ, that we are actually on his mind. And more so than that, he lives. His life is to make intercession for us. And this gateway, this is the reality that shakes loose the pangs of sin. It's the thing that shakes loose the power of shame. And it's the thing that actually shakes loose the realities that entangle our hearts. It's the power that frees us up to come with confidence to the throne of grace. 
It's that we are in Christ. It's our position, not our condition. This is the power that actually forsakes some idea that God is like way off there as like a cosmic vending machine, just doling out what I want, need, and desire. And it reawakens the reality of a risen Christ who is here with us. The God who actually holds us secure, the God who extends grace and peace, the God in whose love, like a love, a perfect love that casts out fear. This is the place in Christ with which we stand. This is our confidence. And this is the God that we actually see prayed to over and over again in the scriptures. You may have heard of this guy, Isaiah's, pretty big deal. He's a kind of a famous prophet. He's on, Jesus quotes him a lot, so he's got to be cool. Um, or maybe you prefer the, the British title Isaiah. So this is, this is something on Isaiah's lips. He says this in Isaiah 64.1. He says, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Stop right there. When is the last time you ever prayed that? Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would rip open the heavens, that you would come down that the mountains might quake at your presence. See, it's, it's with this fervor that Isaiah, he, he calls out to God. He calls out on behalf of his people and he calls out from this place of desperation. And he goes on in verses four or five and check this out. He says, from of old, no one has heard or ear perceived by ear or perceived by the ear. The, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. See, what we see with Isaiah is that prayer, like prayer appeals to the character of God. God is an active God. So he's acting for those who wait upon him. And, and God is an attentive God. He's meeting those who remember him in his ways. And where we find ourselves right now, just to remind you, is between the word of God and the remembrance of God. And right here we hear that God attends to those. And so once again, like, do you actually believe this? Not, not just here, but in your hearts. Like, is this something that you would be willing to give your whole heart to? Do you expect God to act in keeping with his character? And this brilliant and really faithful man, uh, you may have heard of him, A.W. Tozer, um, he's speaking into these things these realities, he says this, he says, what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And then commenting on this, another pastor, his name's John Mark Homer, he just asks this really poignant question. He says, really? Really? Like more important than my family of origin? More important than my sexual identity? Uh, more in, important than like um, the school I go to? More, more important than my ethnicity or my race? Really more important than those things? Um, and, and like most uh, pastors, um, Comer goes on to say yes. And then Tozer kind of keeps in step with that or rather Comer keeps in step with Tozer. But either way, Tozer says this. He ends up saying, the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. So I don't have any idea how we could be confident in a God that is far off, 
In fact, you, I'm just saying, if God is far off to you, don't be confident in him. You don't actually don't want that God. That's not the God that we encounter in Jesus. So just dismiss that God encountered Jesus this morning um, because he is alive and he is real. See, um, and for Tozer, so critical is the understanding of God that he actually sees our spiritual future hanging in the balance of our answer to what we think about when we think about God. He says, like, if this is true, then certainly our life of prayer. If what we think about God is the most important thing about us, then that's going to orient how we come to God. And this has real-time implications. I mean, just recall, Jesus is not just after some sliver of your heart. He's after the whole stinking thing. He wants all of you. He wants all of me. And so if we think that God is like homophobic, and we think that God is angry, or even if we think that God is just disgruntled with humanity, then we're likely to go around as these like Christian bigots holding some sort of abstract phobia in our hands and like holding love at arm's length. But it's not just that direction. It could also be this direction. Like if we think that God is kind of a progressive leaning, a bit bit forward thinking in, in, in how he's orienting himself in the world. So he's affirming, he probably votes blue. I don't like, if that's how we think God is, then we're most likely to represent that in the world as well. And then we're just going to call that following Jesus on both sides. And yet if God is far off and disinterested, if he's really just some sort of life coach, then why? Like, why would we waste our time with this? Paul say things like, we're to be pitied most among humanity if Christ is not risen from the dead. Like legit gateway, like if, if Jesus is not risen from the dead, if he is not a personal God, then we are wasting our time. Because this is a terrible use of your time on a Sunday morning if Jesus is not alive, if he's not risen, if there's not this expectancy to encounter him. And so what comes to your mind? Is it like Isaiah? Like, do you have a, like a smoky mountain, like a God who can rend the heavens, who's gonna tear them loose and like the mountains will shake at his presence? I know there's no mountains here, but like at the, the fields will shake at his presence. Like, And if your problems are like any sim- like at all similar to mine, and there's a whole spectrum of where our problems are on the, on the map, but like, I'll just, I'm just going to, for this point, I'm going to assume that they're similar to mine. And here's my challenge. I often end up with a God that looks more like me than the God I encounter in the scriptures. Um, and Voltaire, because I know you were all reading Voltaire this week, um, great enlightenment thinker in his critique of Christians, he says this. He says, in the beginning, God created man in his own image, uh, and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. I was like, Voltaire throwing some shade. All right, that hurts a little bit. See, a way to tell if we've fallen prey to this way of thinking is if God like miraculously just believes all the things we believe. Uh, he votes the same as us. He embraces the same sexual ethic. In fact, God never annoys us. He's never, we're, we're never, like, he's never on our nerves, but he also never really makes us glad. He's just kind of there. And to be clear, this little tangent that we've been on, <laughs> um, this isn't looking prayer right in the face, is it? And I know for some of my type A folks in the room, like you're just like, just tell me how to pray already, Kyle. Just let's get there because I, I need to check that off. This is going to be a little frustrating for you. Um, see, we're looking at the, the place from which our prayer proceeds, the, the place from which it comes. And it's our position. It's our confidence in and with Christ. And so when we turn back to Paul and Philemon, 
And we see a man whose life is so caught up in this Jesus and his faithfulness. Like he's so caught up with this Jesus, he can only but expect God to attend to the prayers of any and all who are in Christ. That's why in verse 22, he can say this. He can say, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. You see, we are so often, as we're like gorillas hanging on the edge of a mason jar, we're so often tempted to think that prayer is only for the serious Christians, the paid Christians, the, the, the apostles, the ministers, the missionaries. And so what we do is we, we hold like that out as some hierarchy of prayer, and then we exclude ourselves from the thrill of partnering with God in prayer. And yet Paul here, he's actually leaning upon, he's expecting that God will attend to Philemon's prayer. And if you remember, Philemon is a man who's marked by love and faith. That's actually why earlier on in verses four to six in Philemon, why Paul will then like with gratitude welling up in his soul, thank God for how he's heard about the love and the faith in Philemon. And it's and so Paul can look to this and he says, yes, yes, yes. The love and the faith in his life, that marks him out as a way of Jesus. Yes, he's, he's living into it. And Lord, I know that you're gonna attend to his prayers. He expects something of that. And after all of this, like, let me just ask you these questions. Like, what if God actually desires to know you and be known by you? What do you, what do, you do with that? Like, if you're a note-taking type, just like, let these annoy you for this next month. What if God actually desires to know you and be known by you? What if Jesus desires to like hold you secure in his love, the love that casts out all fear? What if Jesus wants you there? Imagine who you would be. Imagine who you would be if you didn't have to earn his love. See, ours is a culture riddled with performance anxieties. The church is not excluded from that. So we think I need to just do this. And then, so we're so caught up in technique, but what if God is saying where you're at right now, that's, that's who I want. I want, I want all of you. D don't clean yourself up, just come to me. And yet sometimes for us, the challenge really is that all we see is our condition. All we see are those, like those shackles. All we feel, all we know is that as the true is true. And in our worst moments and in the worst of seasons, like we hate it. And, and really like that hate extends to ourselves. And our frustration grows worse in moments like this when some dude is just up on stage talking about the gospel because in the gospel, like it just feels like it's pointing out all of your crap, but you're already your worst critic. And see here, it's in our condition that Jesus meets us to, to, to not like leave us. He's never gonna leave you. He's never gonna forsake you. And my, my, my friend and my mentor, Jill, she says this. She says, the gospel doesn't just show me my sin. The gospel shows me my Jesus. That's who's here to attend to our hearts this morning, Gateway. And I just wanna be crystal clear about who this Jesus is. And so writing to the church that meets in Philemon's home, this is who Paul reminds us of. This is the Jesus that holds us secure. So hear these words either for the first time as a refreshing like salve to the wounds of your soul. Just let these wash over your heart. 
He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. When you're feeling like everything is falling apart, let this be your truth. Like claim this, like hold tightly to it, that all things hold together in him. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he is preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, that is you, Gateway, that is me. You who were once alienated and hostile in my doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So the space between the word of God and the remembrance of God is the dependence of God. This is the place where Paul leads Philemon. This is the place where Paul invites us into this place of dependence. And, and this is actually the whole point of this sermon is that expectancy in prayer, it extends from dependency in Christ. Because expectancy without dependence, it just is entitlement. And so it's only from this place of dependency, this, this posture of, of prayer that moves from our position in Christ that says, this is the only place that I can stand alongside my Jesus who lives to make intercession for me. This is my confidence. And so this, this is, this is the, the prayer that we find on Paul's lips in Philemon. This is the end of the sermon. And in a few moments here, we're gonna, we're gonna come forward and we're going to, we're gonna remember this Jesus. We're gonna see that his body was broken. We're gonna see that his blood was poured out. We're gonna, we're gonna take that in as this symbol, as this thing that draws us deeper into this like faithful presence of Jesus. Not as something that's gonna like save you here and now, but as a way to reenact, to represent the gospel to yourself. But what we're also going to do is, I've, th this could totally suck. It's actually my fear that it would. But I just imagine, like I, I, in the conversations I've had with you and the conversations I've not had with you, but if, if your heart's anything like mine, like I desperately need prayer. But I don't have the words all of the time. And I, like, if, if there will be something that marks us out as a church, it must be prayer. It, it cannot, like, it's not gonna be, like, a sweet service. There's no lasers or fog machines coming out of here. It's, it must be prayer. It must be the person of Jesus through the power of the Spirit coming and meeting us in our need. And then out of that, like, going into the places where we find ourselves on the day-to-day, -day, like the 90,000 hours we're going to put into our work, we, we need to be the faithful presence of Jesus there. But if we have no prayer, if we have no dependence, it's for naught. This has been another episode of the Gateway Church Podcast.
Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.